wish people would have beat this into my head when I was at the bedside. It's like, man, like the nurse that goes from like really competent to like par excellence, this is what gets you there. It's like, why is that thinking? Why, why, why? And that recognition at stage B is so, is so crucial. Because that's when we can turn it around. That's when we can turn it around. After this, it's, it's doable, but it's hard. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Run Podcast. Joining me today is my friend, Christian Guzman, the nerdy nurse practitioner. Hello. I am so glad to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy. And this back. is our first one in the podcast closet. And I knew Sarah Cave. I yes. love it. Sarah Cave. <laughs> I knew Sarah Cave. I'm loving it. Digging it. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking back to our first episode together. You guys can imagine. We're like... Um, sitting right next to each other at my dining room table because I had one cheap microphone I bought off Amazon and we had to like sit really close to capture the recording and hear my how and like it's almost legit. And that, was, and that was like a long podcast too though, wasn't it? Was that? That, was, that is my longest podcast. <laughs> it is the longest of yes. all my podcasts. The DKA one, you, you had a lot to say, I guess. On the I, <laughs> <laughs> I felt passionate. Yeah, it's very passionate. Anyways, glad to be back, Christian. Yes. I can't tell you how many people message me and say, when is... When's your friend, the nerdy nurse practitioner, going back on the podcast? That's, that's so. every time you say that, it's going to be a little crazy to hear. <laughs> but you know what? I'm appreciative of, that you guys don't hate my voice. So here we are. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> and for those of you that are visual learners, not only can you listen to Christian <laughs> Guzman, but for this episode, it's going on YouTube. So you can watch Christian Guzman and all of his <laughs> hand talking and fully grasp what he's trying to share. Because that is the struggle with podcasts is yes. Christian tries to describe things with his hands but like no one can see it but they can see you today Christian. you can see so, it. i don't know is, if that's a good thing or a bad thing but here we here we are here we are all right so today we are talking about heart failure leading into cardiogenic shock yes i love this topic my background is cardiac icu and er nursing and in fact when i was a nursing professor this was my topic that i taught i taught on heart failure this is my jam yeah. so i love this stuff can you just share with people why you love cardiac stuff. What's your background? Sure. So for the people who haven't listened to the previous podcast episodes, so I'm actually initially a burn nurse by training. I spent about five years at the bedside in the burn ICU. That's where I met Sarah, my first day as charge nurse, my savior. I was uh, short-staffed. So I went to nurse practitioner school and I worked for a surgical critical care specialty that kind of like floated us between like a bunch of different ICUs. And one of the ones that we floated through was the cardiac ICU. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, I love burns, but this is really cool. <laughs> and it was 
It was a heart transplant center, LDOT, ECMO, all the things. All the fun gadgets. All the things, all the fun gadgets. So pretty much, I think, probably about a year into my nurse practitioner career. So probably about, we're, here, we're in 2023. So this will be sure. so about the last five years I've been just kind of like honing in and focusing on mechanical circulatory support and cardiac physiology. That's kind of been my area of passion, my area of expertise. So this is near and dear. So you're ready to break it down. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Okay. Ready right, to do let's it. do it. So tell us the case study you want to share today. Sure. And then we're going to dive into specifically like what is heart failure, the classifications. That's for this episode. Yes. Next episode, we're going to come back and talk about all of the medical ways that we can manage heart failure. Mm -hmm. And then another episode the week after about Mechanical circulatory support, which is your favorite thing ever. That's like that's like my my love language. <laughs> ECMO is my love language. <laughs> that could be a t-shirt. That could be it. You know what? Trademark. Trademark. Is that how that works? I don't know. <laughs> like, All right. Tell us about this patient, Christian. All right. So this is a female that's in her 60s who pretty much, aside from a history of asthma, and a remote history of breast cancer for which she went treatment and was in remission for about 10 years, was a very healthy woman, very active, gardened about twice a week, walked every day with her Irish Golden Doodle, who was really big. And so very strong lady, very active lady. And she was outside working in her daughter's garden, just kind of like helping thrown up there for the weekend. And then all of a sudden she kind of was feeling like this chest tightness. She's like, okay, this is like an asthma attack. Because apparently the years prior, she would get these intermittent asthma attacks whenever she was working out in the garden or walking around or just random, get the chest tightness, do an inhaler, rested, felt better. So then she started noticing that, all right, so I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to sit down. And her daughter's, so her daughter's dog at the time was like barking nonstop and kind of clued her daughter in to like, hey, there's something wrong. She's diaphoretic and not really looking good. So they call 911. Ambulance comes out to the house. And as the ambulance comes out to the house, lady looks totally fine, walking, talking, oriented, all that stuff. They put her on a 12 lead and she's having an MI. She's having a full blown, a full blown STEMI. That's pleasure right there. So yes. you're telling me the patient is in the garden to yes. like just wait it out. Right? Yes. But the dog's like, something's really wrong. Yeah. And barking like crazy. Yes. Yes. Super like, dog. Oh, no. Super dog. I love that part of the story. Okay, continue. Go. Yeah. So she goes into the ambulance, I mean, it's your MI, and they take her to the hospital, straight to the cath lab. Uh, they meet her. So the heart failure team and the cardiogenic shock team meet her in the emergency department. They take her straight to cath lab, and she has 100% occlusion to her LAD. So for people who are kind of not as familiar with coronary anatomy or with like layman's terms and not really too comfortable with cardiac um, stuff. That's what people would call like the widowmaker, right? Is the LAD gives a lot of perfusion and a lot of blood. Widower maker. Correct. Widower maker. Yeah. Widower maker. In this case, it would have been, but thank goodness it didn't happen. Yeah. But it supplies a lot of, it's the most, the majority of the blood supply of the left ventricle, which as everyone knows, is the ventricle that pumps out blood to the rest of your body. So this is a very, if, if it's not caught in a very timely manner, and if it's not addressed early on, it is a fatal event. So she went, she got, uh, went to the cath lab, got drug-eluting stents, withdrawn misremoval, and came out um, in the cath lab, they put in a swan, and her SVO2 was in the 20s. 
Uh, so they put in a balloon pump. They put her, they had her on dobutamine, inotropic support. They take her to the cardiac ICU. Her EF at the time was about 10%, 10 to 15%. Take her outside in the CVICU. The nurses did such a good job. Really great team. The fellows and the physicians and everyone was just top tier. And pretty much weaned her off the inotropes, weaned her off the balloon pump. And she unfortunately, as a residual from this attack, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. I think she probably had some chronic disease, um, but basically her baseline EF now is 25 to 30%. Longstanding. Which is better than 10%. And nothing, yes. <laughs> which is better than nothing. Right. But so now just giving like full circles before we dive into the pathophysiology and the different compensatory mechanisms and all that. Fast forward, uh, this woman is still gardening about twice a week, has an AICD in place, lives a fairly normal life, actually lives a normal life, takes care of her. marathon running. So she lives a very functional life, has never had an exacerbation uh, three years into it. So before we dive into the pathophysiology, that's, this is a huge win for her, but now she has heart failure, unfortunately, for the rest of her life. And that kind of has its own consequences. Gotcha. All right. So let's dive in. Go. I want to back up just a little bit mm -hmm. and address specifically the myocardial infarction symptoms. Yeah. So a lot of times you think of like, there's an elephant sitting on my chest, left side of chest right, pain. Right. But this is a woman. So yeah. what, what about her presentation was like, okay, yes, this is MI. So actually, if you think about it, so women most commonly, and there's more and more, there's, I mean, a ton of data out there already, that women don't present with um, myocardial infarction the same way that men do. Okay. And even there's newer literature coming out saying that even men, there's a lot of times that men are having an MI with like different, not typical elephant sitting on my chest symptoms as well. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Oh, it feels like an asthma attack because what does an asthma attack feel like? Chest tightness. She has coronary artery disease at baseline. It's just a matter of how long it's diagnosable, but she did not have typical symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about heart failure and all the different types that there are because there's like left versus right and systolic versus diastolic. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into it. All right. So let's go back to the anatomy of the heart. I'm going to look at the camera now. So sorry. <laughs> so you have, so remember that you have your right ventricle and you have your left ventricle, right? Yeah. That kind of looks right. So the blood goes into the right ventricle, into your pulmonary vasculature, and then empties into the left ventricle and then goes out to the rest of the body. So in a normal person, both sides of the heart work in synchrony, okay? So you could classify heart failure in terms of left versus right and diastolic versus systolic. So the first, I kind of differentiated like this in my head. So there's left versus right-sided heart failure. Then there's, so is it the left ventricle that's not really pumping or is it the right ventricle that's not really pumping or is it biventricular failure? where both ventricles are really struggling and they're just, it's just globally non, it just has poor function. And then there's systolic versus diastolic. So there's two phases of uh, the cardiac cycle and it's systole and diastole. So systole is the one that everybody like knows, right? That's the one it's like, you know, the heart's pumping, the blood is ejecting out of the left ventricle, going to the rest of the body. And that's when you feel your pulse, like the bounding of the pulse is the blood leaving the left ventricle, going out into the vasculature. And your arteries kind of like go from this to this and this to this. Like they expand and they collapse. They expand and they collapse. And that's what your pulsation actually is. So 
that's kind of how I classify it. Now, the problem with systolic heart failure, everyone kind of understands that, right? Like, okay, if you're not pumping blood out, it's not getting to your tissues. The purpose of blood is to provide oxygen to the tissues. You have anaerobic metabolism because you're not getting oxygen because there's not blood going moving forward, right? So cool. We know that part. That's easy to conceptualize. I think the diastolic heart failure gets missed a lot. And the reason I think that happens is because people underestimate how important diastole is. So diastole has two phases, okay? So the cardiac cycle has systole and diastole. And let's go into diastole. So diastole happens when the ventricle is opening up. The pressure in the ventricle becomes lower than the pressure in the atria, and it creates a vacuum effect, and the blood just kind of like rushes through. And that's called passive diastole, okay? So then at the end of it, the atria actually will contract. And what it does is, because what happens is that when you go and you open up the ventricle, the blood will go through until there is no pressure gradient, until there is no difference in pressure from the atria and the ventricle, right? And then the pressure's equalized, so there's no movement of blood. So then the atria is like, mm, nah, I still got a little bit more. So then the atria contract and then kind of shove as much that last little bit of blood into the ventricle, right? And then the mitral valve or tricuspid valve will close. And then the ventricle will contract and then it kind of opens out into the aorta to the pulmonary artery. The, um, the problem with diastolic heart failure is if your ventricle does not open up sufficiently for one reason, it's just you could just have like a restrictive cardiomyopathy with sarcoidosis or even like a pericardial effusion or something like that that's preventing it from opening up. But, you know, think of one of the most common comorbidities in these patients is what? Hypertension. So as people are hypertensive for their entire life, their heart's just like pushing against all that afterload, right? Working out. Working out. <laughs> and it gets buffed, it gets swole. And the problem is that the cavity, the ventricular cavity becomes smaller and smaller. So why does that, how does that play in? So remember, let's go back to what I said a few minutes ago. Passive diastole happens when the ventricle opens and the pressure in the ventricle is lower than the pressure in the atria. And then it equalizes and there's no movement, right? That pressure will equalize a lot quicker with a lot less volume if your cavity is smaller. So a better way to put it, or like an easier way to put it, at least in my mind, right, is, you know, so pressure is defined as pretty much, think about like how molecules kind of interact with each other, right? I don't think about that very much, actually, but... <laughs> just me? Just me. Just you. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's essentially what pressure is, right? Is, you know, the interaction between molecules like within a closed space. So if you have the same amount of volume in a larger container, the pressure is going to be lower. If you have that same volume within a smaller container, the pressure is going to be higher. So if your ventricle doesn't open wide because it's a thick ventricle, there's not a lot of space in it, you could actually equalize your pressure and not have a pressure gradient with a lot less volume. So you go and you pump that out, but your stroke volume overall is decreased, right? right? So your ejection fraction will be great because you're like, yeah, 70% ejection fraction, 60% ejection fraction. But in a normal heart where you're putting out 60% of 100 cc's versus 70% of 50 cc's, right? Those are two very different numbers. Right. 
So that's the deal with diastolic heart failure. And I think what happens, it's kind of tricky, right? Because when you read an echocardiogram, it'll show ejection fraction. I think what a lot of people look for, right? That and this number, is, right. Then this is my teaching point to everyone. When you look at an echo, do not only look at the ejection fraction. Don't only look at the ejection fraction. Because the ejection fraction sometimes could be 60%. And they're still presenting with heart failure. So like, I don't know, but it's about heart. Just doesn't look right. Also look at the diastolic function. Also look at, does the patient have a hypertrophic ventricle? Because then that's, that's even though you have an ejection fraction of 60%, it doesn't really matter because you're not getting blood out. So just to summarize it all, mm -hmm. systolic heart failure is you have a kind of like stretched out ventricle that's not quite as strong. Right. So when it squeezes, there's less stroke volume because the squeeze sucks. Correct. Diastolic heart failure is you got a thick, I just said swole ventricles. There's not much space in that room, less real estate for blood to even fill. Yeah. So when it squeezes, even if you have a great ejection fraction, the fracture blood that comes out, it's just a small room. So yeah. there's not much blood that went in the first place. So either way, you have a low stroke volume, you have heart failure, whether it's from diastolic or systolic heart failure. And then for left versus right, can you talk about the symptoms of left heart failure versus right heart failure? Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive in-depth course However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I want to offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I want to create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. Yeah, so if you think about the left side of the heart, the left side of the heart is going to perfuse the body, right? And the right side of the heart is going to perfuse the lung. 
And the left side of the heart gets from the lungs and the right side of the heart gets blood from the entire venous circuit, right? So like all of your body, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, all that venous drainage goes to the right side of the heart, then goes to the lungs. Whereas the left side of the heart gets it from the lungs and then takes it out to the body. So they're gonna present a little bit different. So what you will see in left-sided heart failure, like isolated left-sided heart failure, is you're gonna be pale. There is overlap, but sometimes you will have a poor ejection fraction, a poor, if you have left-sided heart failure, you won't be as swollen. You'll hear rails or crackles, right? Because it's backing up into the lungs. Because remember, if, you're, if your heart isn't pumping out to the rest of the body, the left side of the heart isn't pumping out to the rest of the body, it's backing out into the lungs, right? So what that does is that actually engorges the uh, pulmonary vasculature and it increases your capillary hydrostatic pressure. So if you go back to your physiology, there's two types of pressure in the capillaries, technically four, but two, right? <laughs> there's, we have time for two today. We have time right. for two. There's osmotic pressure and there's hydrostatic pressure. So osmotic pressure happens when like, basically that's like the molecules in the blood vessels are keeping all the fluid into the blood vessels and making sure that you have volume to deliver. Hydrostatic pressure is pretty much the pressure that's driving fluid out of the blood vessels. So the more fluid you have in a blood vessel, more volume you have in a, in a particular blood vessel or in the blood vessels in general, that actually increases hydrostatic pressure because there's nowhere else to go. So they're just like, all right, get it out. So if you have left-sided heart failure, it's gonna back up into the lungs and it's gonna cause the pulmonary vasculature to get real dilated and super edematous and super swollen. And the hydrostatic pressure is gonna drive the fluid into the lungs. And then a lot of times, right, this can lead into increased pulmonary artery pressures. So the same way that hypertension on the left causes heart failure on the left heart and stress on the left heart because the heart has to pump against it. Well, remember, the aorta and your blood pressure out in the system, like what we check on our blood pressure cuff and our A line, is that is to the left heart the same way that the pulmonary artery pressures are to the right heart. So a lot of times that could lead to excess afterload on the right heart. So you're saying you could start with left heart failure. And then progress and to the right heart. heart. And then so now the symptoms of right heart failure are going to always be organ congestion. So like pitting edema, ascites, pleural effusions, things like that. Now, it's really interesting because if you look at your lab values, right, you'll start to see that your creatinine is going up, right? Your liver enzymes are going up. But why is that happening? So when you have right-sided heart failure, you have an increase in your central venous pressure. Why? The same way that the left ventricle, if it's not pumping out to the rest of the body, goes to the pulmonary arteries and the pulmonary vasculature and backs up that way. The right side, if you're not pumping it out into the pulmonary arteries, it's going to back up into the venous circuit. And that'll increase your central venous pressures. Okay. So why does that matter? Why is that important with renal function and liver function? Well, your organ perfusion is based off of two factors. The pressure of blood pushing forward into the organ, as well as the back pressure causing resistance. So the pressure in your organs, in your kid, to your kidneys, into your liver, the pressure of the blood moving, putting blood through that organ, 
is going to be your mean arterial pressure. And if you subtract it by the back pressure, like the resistance against it on the other side, that's going to be your central venous pressure. That's called your organ perfusion pressure. So let's say, for example, if you have a CVP of five and you have a mean arterial pressure of 70, your organ perfusion pressure, your real perfusion pressure, liver perfusion pressure is going to be about 65, right? Yes, I can math. So imagine if your map still stays around 70, but now your CVP is 20 because you're so, your venous pressures are elevated. Well, now your organ perfusion pressure dropped from 65 to 50. So that's, so that's why you'll see that. And that, that happens a lot more with right-sided failure. Another thing that you can see if you have isolated right-sided failure so right-sided failure could be right-sided heart failure just isolated by itself from either excessive pulmonary hypertension, excessive like afterload on the right ventricle, or because of just congestion from the left ventricle, right? Because remember, let's go back. If you're not pumping out to the body, it's going back to the pulmonary vasculature, and then it puts stress on the right heart, and then it goes that way. A lot of times, the right heart itself just is pooped out, either from a myocardial infarction to the right coronary artery, or other things like pulmonary embolism, excessive positive pressure ventilation, all those sorts of things. So why do I mention that? Because if you look at it, a lot of times, like when somebody has symptoms of right-sided heart failure, we order an echo. And what we're looking for in the echo is not necessarily the left ejection fraction. Yes, that's what we're looking for. But if you have your right ventricle isn't pumping out blood forward, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, remember, your heart looks like this, where you have the septum in between. Mm -hmm. So if this is the right side of the heart, instead of it being like this, it kind of looks like this. So it kind of pushes and compresses. It kind of cramps the style of the left ventricle. So you're not moving blood from the right to the left. And if you're not moving from the right to the left, the left doesn't have anything to pump out to the rest of the body. So now we start going down this whole spiral of like, you know, we have elevated venous pressures. The right ventricle is getting more and more dilated. We have decreased stroke volume on the left. You have decreased cardiac output. And it's just going on and on. And so are you advocating for the right heart to get some more credit for their work? Because I'm like, yes. they're like, yes, left heart, ejection fraction, pump that blood out, baby. The right ventricle but, is the forgotten ventricle. Right. Okay? It's like the smaller sibling that just gets left behind. It does. It's so important. 100%. 100%. <laughs> it's not quite as like, good luck, he's not as strong, but it's, it plays it's, a very vital role. <laughs> and it does. And it's so it's really interesting that you say that. It's not as good looking and it's not as strong. So you're 100% correct. The geometry of the right ventricle is cattywampus. If you look at our echo, like you have the left ventricle, which kind of has like this perfect, like, you know, circular shape. It's concentric. It has uh, more layers of uh, myocytes. It's more concentric in its uh, contraction. It's nice and pretty. And then what do you have? So this is your left ventricle. And then you have like the weird kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> like avocado looking like ventricle. And it's weird because, so remember, the left ventricle is always pumping against a blood pressure of 120 over 80 versus the right ventricle has less myocytes because it's not, it's pumping over a blood pressure of 25 over 10, quarter over dime. So any sort of thing can cause the right ventricle, any like, it's very delicate. Any sort of little thing can cause the right ventricle to kind of poop out and then it all goes haywire. So yes, 
I'm here. I'm here to fight for the Ray Ventricle. <laughs> for the Ray Ventricle. I'm here for for the Ray Ventricle. It's important too. I swear. Okay, so we talked about left versus right sided heart failure. Yes. Left sided symptoms being like lung type issues, so pulmonary congestion, etc. Mm -hmm. Right sided heart failure being congestion in the rest of the body. So like you said, all the organs because. That's what feeds the right ventricle. So if it's back and up, it's backing up. That would be like your JVD and et cetera. Mm -hmm. All right. And then systolic versus diastolic. So you have either the heart can't pump Correct. or the heart can't fill. Yeah. And it all goes back to hemodynamics, right? It all goes back to cardiac output. So cardiac output is how much blood is circulating in liters per minute. So it matters. That matters because you need to circulate the blood because blood carries oxygen to the tissues. If you're not circulating blood, then there's no oxygen to the tissues and the tissues die and you have end organ dysfunction. Cardiac output is calculated by stroke volume times heart rate, okay? So if you have decreased stroke volume, your cardiac output's gonna decrease. If your cardiac output decreases, you have less oxygen going to the, going to the tissues. So that's what it comes down to. In this case, it's gonna be stroke volume. Your stroke volume's either decreased because there's not enough space to even fill the heart or because the heart just can't like pump it out. Good. Okay. So that's the different types of heart failure. And then can we talk about a patient that progresses from say like a chronic heart failure, they're walking around and gardening with this heart failure to someone who goes into cardiogenic shock and they're like an extremist. Can you break down that like flow or terrible spiral into bum, close bum, to death? <laughs> okay. So we're going to get nerdy, okay? <laughs> Bring it. Bring it, All right. So it all comes down to wall tension. And wall, so wall tension is basically the tension and the pressure on the ventricular wall that occurs, okay? So afterload is wall tension throughout systole, right? And preload is tension, is wall tension at the end of diastole, okay? And that makes sense because if you have... Preload is like fluid. So if you have a lot of fluid on board, when you're at the end of diastole, that means that your heart's filled with stuff. And the more volume you have, the more pressure you have. And then if your blood pressure is too high, right, that's more pressure in the ventricle. And that'll increase your wall tension. And that'll basically increase your wall tension throughout systole. That increases your afterload. Okay. So what happens with heart failure is that let's go with systolic. So starting with systolic heart failure. If you have systolic heart failure, if you have uh, chronic systolic heart failure, you're constantly riding this kind of like fine line in which you need preload because you need volume in the heart to pump it out. You but, can't tolerate much of it. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's it's really hard because how do you tell people like, like what's, it's kind of a really hard, it's a moving target, it's a dynamic target. So when you have heart failure, you constantly, assuming that you have just pure systolic heart failure, you constantly have this dilated left ventricle, okay? And most of the time, the left ventricle, if you're optimized on your medication therapy and you're stabilized, you're able to pump that fluid out, maybe not 60% of the fluid, like meaning the normal ejection fraction, but it, enough to where it's pumping out to maintain a car, an adequate cardiac output. So if you have, like, let's say, for example, an event where you miss your medication, you miss your diuretic, now what happens is you have increased filling pressures, meaning you have increased volume on your heart and the heart dilates and dilates and dilates. 
And there's this neat thing called the Frank Starling curve, which is kind of like, so the Frank Starling curve, if we all remember from nursing school and from med school and from NP school, wherever, is kind of like the idea that the more that the ventricle stretches, the more it'll go and kind of pump out forward, the more force it will. The problem is that if you increase the diameter of the ventricle, if it dilates out too much, the heart is not able to go and pump it out. And the reason that is, is because if you get a piece of your heart muscle, you have these things called sarcomeres. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Here we so, go. So sarcomeres are like the basic fundamental part of the muscle tissue. And basically it's like these little fibers that kind of go like this. And whenever you contract, they get closer. And whenever they relax, they spread apart, but they always stay together because if they don't, you're not able to move and open and move and open and move and open. So if you dilate your ventricle out too much and you go past that Frank Starling curve, you're just, a lot of those sarcomeres are just kind of like, ah, help me, help me. So they're not able to attach and they're not able to contract, right? So what does that mean? So you have chronic heart failure. You don't really have a lot of reserve. Now you miss your diuretic pill or you drink too much fluid or you have a high salty meal and your blood volume increases or your blood pressure goes really high or whatever it may be your vegetable gets too dilated and you're not able to pump forward. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you have poor cardiac output, because if you're not able to pump forward, you decrease your stroke volume. Decreased stroke volume leads to decreased cardiac output. Decreased cardiac output means decreased blood flow to the kidneys and you trigger your renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. And what does that do? That retains salt. That's so your kidneys are thinking, oh my gosh, like we're hypotensive. We need more volume and we need more pressure. <laughs> so it's like, ah. so we're holding on to salt. So we're holding on to fluid and we're vasoconstricting. So now your afterload is increasing. So now your heart that's already struggling because it's like too overloaded is like, oh no, it's more. There's I can't. More. There's more. No, kidneys, no. <laughs> it's kind of like the kidneys are just like, ah. <laughs> So then we kind of go into this spiral in which the heart gets to a point where it's not able to compensate anymore. And you start having symptomatic poor perfusion to the organs. So you'll start to notice that your skin becomes cold. Why? Because what gives you warmth, like a warm body, is because you have blood flowing right through your skin. So they're warm, right? But if you're cold, that's because you're so vasoconstricted that you're not getting blood flow to the skin. So it's kind of like a cold shock. You'll start noticing that you start getting like pitting edema. Well, why is that? Because if your left isn't pumping out, it's because of the afterload and all that. It's going back into the right and it's increasing your venous pressures and you're just getting all swollen. Your kidney starts to hit. You're not making urine. And the crazy thing about it is like you, before that happens, you're actually developing this kind of cascade before you become symptomatic because those are symptoms that happen when you have poor cardiac output. But before that poor cardiac output state starts to occur, the stress has already been occurring for a long time. So the key is to kind of catch that as catch those subtle signs early. And those subtle signs will be like, you know, their heart rate is a little higher. Their blood pressure is a little bit softer man, their ankles are a little bit more swollen, so they're having to lift their legs a little, put their legs up for a little bit longer. Man, I'm having to sleep with two or three pillows instead of like my normal, like one pillow. Those are subtle signs that, you know, it's really easy to miss, mm -hmm. 
because you don't think much of it. And, you know, it's, it's hard, right? We're in a, we're in a setting where, you know, we're caring for a lot of patients who are trying to triage. So it's very easy to miss those subtle signs and symptoms. So you kind of have to be like on the lookout for them. So Christian, when we think about patients who progress from just like chronic heart failure to say cardiogenic shock, and they're like about to crash in code, is there maybe by chance like an acronym that could help us remember the different stages leading up to shock? Why, Sarah, are you hinting at something? <laughs> so there's the SKY criteria, right? So the SKY criteria um, is this criteria for cardiogenic shock, and it goes A, B, C, D, and E, and each of them have their own acronym. So A is at risk. So that's like, those are the patients that are at risk. They have like a heart failure diagnosis. And the reason they put that in there is because they want you to know and be on alert. This is a patient I should be looking out for. Right. So those are just risk factors. B is when you're beginning to have some sort of like episodes that are indicative. You're not at the end organ perfusion, but you're starting to have some subtle signs. High heart rate, low blood pressure, vasovagally. Like people are like, oh, yeah, they vasovagal last night. I'm not really sure why that's so random. Must have been something that we gave them. It's like, well, or it's probably like some impending shock. And that's. That's the point, yeah. right? So it be for beginning, right? Be for beginning. beginning to get yeah. bad. Yes. I wanted to pause and just say, this is the point where I am so grateful for nurses who can recognize this and speak about advocate before we get on the other stages. This is the patient who like, day shift told me, yeah, the patient's been tachycardic all day. They've been in the, you know, 105, 110, and now they're 115. Like this nurse should say, why is my patient tachycardic laying in the bed? Yeah. Versus like, oh, yeah, they do that. Well, most people don't just do that, right? Like, what's changed? Like, what is beginning to develop for this patient, right? Yeah. So starting to find those signs and symptoms, like, okay, the blood pressure is like a little on the low side, the heart is on the high side. They don't feel as warm as they did yesterday. Like, what? Well, these changes are not like, oh, my God, go around response. They're not breathing. It's just early. Yeah. And so I think, and to that point, it's like, why is that happening, right? So remember... Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. So if your blood pressure is the same and you're tachycardic, there is a problem. If your blood pressure is 120 over 80 with a heart rate of 60 and 120 over 80 with a heart rate of 130, there is a problem. And this is, and I think, and I've said this, and I, I feel like I try to harp on this. Nurses are key. Nurses are key. This is like, we as practitioners, are so dependent on nurses. And I wish people would have beat this into my head when I was at the bedside. It's like, man, like the nurse that goes from like really competent to like par excellence, are the, this is what gets you there. It's like, why is that thinking? Why, why, why? And that recognition at stage B is so, is so crucial. Because that's when we can turn it around. That's when we can turn it around. After this, it's, it's doable, but it's hard. Yeah, and, it's, and there's actual statistics to back it. So then we go to stage C, which is like the classical. They're hypo. So you have a, a little bit of a lactic acidosis. You are on like low dose pressors or like you're giving fluid. Like they're hypotensive. Ah, give them 250 of fluid. Give them 500 of fluid, right? That face. Yeah. Because <laughs> like fluid's not all the time is the answer. But, you know, let's not appropriate. Like let's, let's trial some fluid and see what happens. Maybe they're dehydrated. So you give them some fluid, whatever. So that's, you're starting to have classical symptoms. D is for deteriorating. So this is this is where it starts to get bad. This is where you're on like, hide, like you're on pressors, 
you're, you know, probably you're in renal failure, you're maybe requiring non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, like BiPAP, CPAP, which has its own like benefits for cardiovascular performance. And this is like, you're in the danger zone and you need to do something. You need to turn this around now or you're likely going to lose this patient. And then there's E, which is extremis, which is almost, which is almost fatal. I think it's something like 80% mortality. It's really high. And that's the one that's like on, you know, you're giving like report in the beginning and you're rounding. It's like this patient's on max dose, levofed, epi, dopamine, dopudamine, milrinone, vasopressin. You're like, guys, we're running out of options here. Sage. <laughs> yeah. Sage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that it's not, patients just don't go from like talking to you, walking around right. to like, BM, cardiac shock, unless there's been, you know, huge MI, obviously like yeah. those things. But it takes time for the kidneys to screw things up, right? Yeah, no, it <laughs> like does. The kidneys are like, oh, that's interesting. We need less flow. Let me just hold on to more volume. That takes time for the heart to feel the effects of it. And that. it's interesting because if you look at the mortality, between like stage C and stage D, right? Between classical and deteriorating, if you could, the mortality doubles. Yeah. It doubles when you get to stage D. And to go from stage B to stage C, there's a significant mortality increase as well. So the problem is that if you're in stage C, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Right. It takes one- 500 cc bolus. It takes one 500 cc <laughs> bolus. Right. Let's be real. Let's be honest with ourselves. There's a lot of medicine that's like, you know, you have two equally good and equally bad options and you have to pick one. And we're not sure which one we're going to pick, but we're going to do our we're going to try our hardest and we're going to use our science based thought process to make a decision. And sometimes it's the wrong decision and it can easily tip someone over. So I think the takeaway that you said was key, like catch them at B when they're beginning to have problems. And that's when we can adjust the medication yes. and we can diarrhea. We get diarrhea or we get a chest x-ray. Let's get an echo. Let's send a, a brain natriuretic peptide that people like that's like the forgotten lab test. Do a point of care ultrasound. Uh-huh. Ha. Right. But you get what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's really easy for me to go and throw someone who's proficient to go and throw a probe on you. And see, okay, so I know that your systolic function isn't that great, but I can look at your IBC. And whereas, you know, if you're starting to get a deminus and your IBC is like pulsating, okay, we have problems here. Right. Things are backing up. Things yeah. are backing up. Okay. So we talked about left versus right heart failure, systolic versus diastolic. All the stages progressing from someone at their house with heart failure to someone in the cardiac ICU on multiple vasopressors with cardiac shock. It's definitely a very terrible cascade. But we can intervene. We we can turn things around. Hundred percent. And that's what we're talking about next week. So, <laughs> okay, um, this has been a great breakdown. Yeah. I cannot wait for next week. We have to talk about all of the uh, medical interventions we can do, like pharmacological interventions to help patients with heart failure. The fun things. And then eventually we will get to your favorite. My love language. Gadgets, <laughs> gadgets for supporting someone with heart failure. So, Christian, once again, thank you so much. Thank you for I having me. Having my podcast. Yeah, I love I love you guys. I love your listeners. <laughs> this is like such it's and I love this place. This is I'm digging this up. You're, you're digging my podcast. I'm digging this up. All right. We'll see you guys next week. All right. See you next week. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. 
And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.